sinner to, to finish it, uh, uh, entitled Washed in the Blood. And already uh, you know this metaphor that is, is used in the scriptures to describe uh, what the blood of Jesus does for us relative to sin and forgiveness of sin. But it's an interesting study, and uh, I'm going to uh, begin by reading a scripture from Revelation chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Revelation 1, 4 and 5. And it reads, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. If you're reading, uh, I'm reading from the New King James here, and uh, the King James also uses the word washed here. If you have uh, another uh, version, it probably will read something to the effect that we have been freed or released from our sins uh, through the blood of Jesus. But I like the translation here, uh, which translates it washed. Because it's not the only uh, reference in Scripture that describes uh, the blood of Jesus and the action of the blood of Jesus uh, as a washing. So we're going to be looking at that this morning. Of course, we begin with the fact that it is the blood that saves the blood of Jesus Christ shed on the cross of Calvary that serves as that once for all time perfect human sacrifice that God was satisfied with, that he was pleased with, and that he accepted as atonement for our sins. If we look at Matthew 26, verses 27 through 28, the Context here, of course, is when Jesus, not before the crucifixion, instituting the Lord's Supper, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. And then verse 28, For this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So we know this. Uh, it was uh, in the Old Testament uh, pointing forward, uh, recognizing that the Messiah's blood uh, would be given for man's sins. And there in Revelation, we've already looked at chapter 1, verses uh, 4 uh, through 6, uh, in the New King James, which says that... Uh, our sins are washed in the blood of Jesus. But going over to chapter 7 in Revelation, uh, there is a unanimous agreement among the translations of, of how it's translated. Matthew, or rather Revelation chapter uh, 7, uh, 
verses 13 through 14. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so again, we see here that uh, it is the blood of Jesus that saves us from our sins. And to describe how it does this, uh, the Bible, among other ways, describes it as a washing. We are washed from our sins. Uh, growing up, all of us guys know how it was. We just didn't like that. We had to get in the tub. We had to scrub. We had to wash up. Well, after all, we had all the mud and dirt and grime from outside, you know, where we had been playing all, all day long. We had to wash behind our ears. But when uh, we obeyed our parents and we did it, we came out sparkling clean. Uh, nice, clean kid for a while. But that's the idea that we get uh, when we think about washing. I have a white truck and uh, it, uh, it doesn't show dirt very, very bad. And so I'll, I tend to go quite a long time before washing it. It doesn't, uh, unless I'm in mud or something, otherwise just the road grime and everything, it doesn't show up a whole lot. But then when I do get around to washing it, Wow, it's, I could see that it really needed washing. It's just bright and brilliant uh, washing. Washing uh, has to do with removal of that which is impure or uh, dirty, unclean. It makes one clean. It makes something clean, a washing. And so that's the idea here of the blood of Jesus. It washes us, makes us clean from our sins. Well, the question then uh, comes, especially to those who are not Christians, who might be studying these things for the first time. Well, I understand that it is the blood of Jesus that saves, and I understand that it washes me from my sins. But we're talking in spiritual terms here. Uh, how does that in reality affect me? How, how am I washed by the blood of Jesus? And so what we're going to be looking at this morning are three scriptures, three passages of scripture, which show beyond a shadow of a doubt that uh, baptism, immersion in water in Jesus' name for the forgiveness of sins, is where sinners are washed in the blood. And the three passages that we're going to be looking at, we see that baptism is where sinners are washed in the blood, as seen, first of all, in the new birth, uh, as seen, second of all, in Saul's baptism, Saul of Tarsus, and thirdly, as seen in the Corinthians' salvation. So we're going to spend our uh, time this morning looking at uh, passages which describe these, uh, these three uh, events. So let's look, first of all, uh, at the idea that baptism is where sinners are washed in the blood as seen in the new birth. 
We know what the new birth is. But let's go to Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. Uh, Would somebody like to turn there and read that, please? Uh, Titus 3, verses 4 through 7. And if you get there first, go ahead and read for us, please. Right. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by the works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Okay, so here we have the term washing of regeneration and connected with that and concurrent with that is the renewal of the Holy Spirit. And so we understand then that this new birth, uh, birth is a a regeneration, it is a uh, birth, Uh, it is bringing uh, forth new life. Let's go to John 3 verses 1 through 5. Would somebody please read that? John 3, 1 through 5. Then there was a man of Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Satan came to Jesus by night and said unto him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher came from God. But no man can, can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? And he entered the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, All right, thank you, Sam. This shows us very definitely that what Titus is referring to as the washing of regeneration is, in fact, uh, the new birth that Jesus is describing to Nicodemus here. So the washing of regeneration is the new birth. Uh, When does one receive the Holy Spirit? And uh, we've had good studies on that recently uh, uh, in this uh, class about the Holy Spirit. And we go to Acts chapter 2, verses 37. And uh, let's see. Now, before I'm getting ahead of myself here, you do that when you get older. Uh, But the washing of regeneration is the new birth as seen in John. But in Romans 6, 3 through 4, when does the new spiritual life begin? And so would somebody please look at uh, Romans 6, 3 through 4. Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. 
All right, thank you. According to this scripture that uh, Paul uh, penned, uh, when does the newness of life or the new life or the spirit, new spiritual life begin? As we come up out of the water and grave of baptism, the Holy Spirit comes into us and makes us alive. All right. So it is at the point of baptism. Uh, Paul makes it very clear here. We are baptized into the death of Christ. Baptism is a reenactment of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the new birth, uh, the new life, the washing of regeneration, uh, we understand then that that is when spiritual life begins, at baptism. And then, of course, uh, Mike, as Mike has mentioned, when does one receive the Holy Spirit? Because Titus and uh, Jesus both refer to uh, these two things. We, we see that it's talking about a new life, a, a new birth, a regeneration, but it is also connected at the same time with the reception of the Holy Spirit. And so, again, in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 38, a text that we all know by heart, I'm sure. But there on the day of Pentecost, as the apostles of Peter primarily standing and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to them, and it was received by many, and their hearts were pricked. And beginning with verse 37, now when... They heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so we see then that this is at the point of baptism also where one receives the Holy Spirit. So new spiritual life and the Holy Spirit uh, are connected with baptism and occurs at the point of baptism. So in baptism in Jesus' name for the forgiveness of sin, one experiences the new birth. One experiences the washing of regeneration. One experiences uh, the reception of the Holy Spirit. And so we see uh, from this passage, uh, especially in Titus chapter 3, uh, the washing of, regener of regeneration, that sinners baptized uh, into Jesus Christ are washed in the blood. And this is the new birth. But then going on, we want to look at uh, Saul's baptism. And this is in uh, two or three different places in the book of Acts. But I want us to look especially as it is recorded in Acts chapter 22. And we'll begin with uh, verses 12 and go through 16. This is Saul's baptism. And I'd like for somebody to read that, please. Acts 22, 12 through 16. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there, he came unto me and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. 
in the same hour I looked upon him, and that's quit working, so someone else take over. <laughs> the one will pick up at verse 14. Thank you. Again, Jesus shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. We've already seen this in uh, the Matthew 26, verse 28 reading, that as he took the fruit of the vine uh, in the Passover meal and said, take and drink it, because from this point forward, uh, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And then we've already read from Acts 2.38 where Peter said, Be baptized in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. And so we see in Saul's baptism that he was told very clearly uh, that he needs to get up. He needs to be baptized. Why? For what purpose? To wash away. And he uses the word there, wash away your sins. And uh, there is agreement in all of the translations of this. Uh, the word that Ananias uses here is washed. And so the blood of Jesus is what washes us from our sins. And at baptism is when this washing, this cleansing takes place. Therefore, baptism is when one contacts the blood of Jesus that saves from sin. And this is why Ananias said what he did. Arise and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Did Saul uh, believe prior to this? Yeah, he did. Uh, when he was there on the road, the Lord appeared to him, spoke to him, and he was told what he must do, and that was to go into the city, and there it will be told you what to do, and he was there praying. And so many say that he was saved when he believed there on the road. That he was saved. Well, if he was, he was still in his sins because when he goes in, he's praying. He's not praying as a saved man. He's praying as a man condemned, undone, still in his sins. And so when Ananias comes to him and he says, Brother Saul, that's not in a uh, sense that spiritually uh, you are my brother, but nationally, you are a fellow Jew, Brother Saul. Why are you waiting? Get up and be baptized, washing away your sins. Saul still had his sins at that point. Uh, 
maybe it's a surprise to most of us that when people are reading these verses who are not Christians, maybe they are members of other religious groups, and they believe that one is saved by faith only at the point of belief, and that one is baptized later on because Jesus commanded that everyone be baptized, but later on as a sign of what's already happened. And this just disputes that. It, it's very clear that the sins are still with a person until he is washed in the blood in the waters of baptism. Huh? If he is saved on the road, as people say, Jesus didn't know it because he sent him to find out what to do. That's a good point. If he is saved on the way, then he didn't know it because he had to go and tell him what to do. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's very clear, uh, therefore, that uh, as seen in Saul's baptism, that uh, baptism is where sinners are washed in the blood, where sinners come in contact with the saving blood of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, good point and, and well-worded. Uh, something that we must do, and of course we're accused when we start talking like that, well, you're talking about salvation by works. But uh, Titus uh, very uh, easily addressed that back when we read Titus uh, chapter 3. He says in verse 5 that he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. So good point uh, brought out there. Saul's baptism shows us then that uh, the washing of the blood uh, happens at baptism. But then we go on then to the third passage for our consideration. And that is the salvation of the Corinthians. We know that this was a point in Paul's uh, missionary journeys where he went and he stayed for a period of time. He proclaimed the gospel of Christ. People heard and uh, believed and obeyed and were baptized into Christ and the church was established in Corinth. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, uh, verses 9 through 11, Paul is writing a letter to this church. He's reminding them of uh, their past, where they had come from, and where they are now, and how they got to where they are now, what was done, what they did. So we turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and so let's read verses 9 through 11. If uh, somebody would be kind enough to read that, uh, 1 Corinthians 9. Uh, 6, rather. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Hope know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor effeminate abusers of themselves, of mankind, 
nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. All right, thank you. So these Corinthians, uh, we know from past lessons in our own study uh, that Corinth was a very wicked place. A lot of sin there. To be called a Corinthian was to be the ultimate insult, describing you as a man of, of the world, uh, an evil man, uh, unspiritual. But the Church of Christ was established there by the preaching of the gospel and by those who heard and obeyed and were baptized into Jesus Christ. And again, Paul uses uh, this terminology that you were washed. When you obeyed the gospel fully, you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified all in the same act. Look at some of the Corinthian sins here. It's, uh, it's terrible. I tell you what, uh, in the uh, more modern translations, it doesn't mince words here. Uh, when it talks about uh, in verse 11 or verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality. There it is in all of the modern translations. But anyway, this whole group of sins, that's, that was the Corinthians' lifestyle. That's where they were before the preaching of the gospel. But then they heard, they believed, they repented, they were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And Paul is reminding them, you were like this, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. And the same word that's translated washed here is the same words that uh, Ananias used when he said to Saul, now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So the same Greek word is used here in both. Uh, so this is, again, uh, unequivocally, the idea of being washed in the blood is connected with baptizing, baptism in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins. So they were washed when they were baptized in Jesus' name for the forgiveness of sins. And that's when they became Christians. That's when they were saved. And so it's a good uh, metaphor to use and to consider. Uh, What's the results, according to Corinthians here, of being washed in the blood of Jesus, of being baptized in Jesus' name for the remission of sins? What's the results? Justified. Yeah, and sanctified. You are, right, go ahead. Between the sins that were listed here and those words, 
justified is to be innocent or be freed. Yeah, to be freed. And back there in uh, Revelation chapter 1, uh, the scripture that we uh, read first, uh, where the King James and the New King James uh, uses the word wash there, but there uh, most other translations use this idea of being freed or released from sins. So again, we see that baptism here is in the middle. So here we are. How do we come uh, to these facts that are clear that baptism is essential? We've already looked at this a great deal. I think Brent did a great job in the uh, lessons on baptism. But again, uh, it, it, it is so crystal clear. If we just take the Bible and what the Bible says, what Jesus says, what the inspired apostles said and the other writers of the Bible say, how can people miss it? And uh, it, it's something that all of us have wondered about. It is so clear. So how in the world can people read this and come away saying that baptism is not essential? They will say, that it is commanded. Jesus commands baptism. And so we're going to baptize, but they assign to it a different purpose, a different reason for being baptized as an outward sign of an inward grace, of a signification that I've been saved. And therefore, as far as salvation itself is concerned, it's not essential. It is needful because Jesus commanded, but it's not essential for salvation. Again, the scriptures that we looked at, and we can look at many, many more, uh, it is so clear. Uh, several years ago, as I was contemplating this, uh, and I was wondering again uh, how it is that people can look at this and say that baptism is not connected with salvation itself as far as the forgiveness, reception of salvation. And so the research that, that I went into, it, it seemed that the door I was coming out of to maybe explain how it is that a person can read such scriptures as this and still come away saying it's not essential for salvation is that it depends on the lens through which Everything is viewed in the scriptures. Uh, salvation by faith only does not go all the way back to the New Testament times. It was something that pretty much came into being during Martin Luther's times in the 1500s, 1600s. Uh, Martin Luther was a Roman Catholic uh, priest, I guess he was, uh, but he was at that time dissatisfied with what was going on in the Catholic Church because they were wanting to build a great new edifice, a great temple, a great church building, and to finance it, they were finagling this way and that way how to get revenue, how to generate revenue to build 
this edifice. And they came up with indulgences. And that is that you can pay a certain amount of money and you can receive forgiveness, not only for yourself, but also for your loved ones. You can buy your salvation. If you just give us money, then you don't have to worry about it anymore. If you sin, uh, just give us some more money and you, you got it, no, no problem. And Martin Luther saw this. He, saw, he knew that it was against Scripture. Well, in his study, it seems that he went all the way from the extreme of, and it was salvation by works. That's what he was upset about. The sale of indulgences by the Catholic Church was, in effect, uh, salvation by works. And so in combating that, he went all the way to the other extreme. And in his translation, uh, there in Romans, he says that we are saved by faith only. But then he says, Martin Luther himself says, that... uh, I know that baptism is necessary, and this is documented in Martin Luther's own writings. Salvation by faith only goes back to Martin Luther, but in reality, Martin Luther himself believed that salvation was dependent upon baptism, and it's written there. But his followers, primarily after him, latched on to his teachings, and they went beyond what Martin Luther himself believed, and they said that faith only is in there. Martin Luther said that, uh, I know that the word only is not in the text, but I, Martin Luther, am putting it there. And so it's not in the text. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say that we are saved by faith only. The only place that it is mentioned is in James where it says that a person is not saved by faith only. And so the point I'm making is in trying to understand how people can look at such scriptures and come away saying that baptism is non-essential is that they are looking through every passage in the New Testament through the eyes of we are saved by faith only. And so that's where they begin. It's the premise upon which they base everything. We know for a fact that we are saved by faith only. Therefore, Acts 2.38, where it says, Repent and be baptized every one of you for, in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins, and you will see the gift of the Holy Spirit. Since we know that we are saved by faith only, this cannot mean that. It has to have another meaning. Mark chapter 16, 15 and 16, Jesus said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. He who disbelieves will be condemned. Yes, that's what Jesus says. But as we know, we're saved by faith only. Therefore... Jesus cannot have meant here that baptism is essential. And in my mind, that's that's how I've come to understand how that a person can read such plain scriptures as this and come away saying it's non-essential. Their beginning point is that we are saved by faith only. No debate. It's a fact. In stone. 
And therefore, everything else has to be interpreted without understanding. And so they do. Uh, a lot more could be said, but probably uh, we don't want to drive this point in, in the ground. And the series that's coming up, I think we're going to be uh, looking at a lot of different uh, topics. But anyway, just wanted to uh, go over these thoughts with you about baptism being the point at which one is washed in the blood of Christ. Thank you. Larry, I suppose we have to study because faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. As you said, people hear this all their life. They don't look at the Bible and say, well, that's what the preacher says. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely.